welcome to the Right to Food, the award-winning podcast of the Food Foundation. I'm Yumna, one of its team of young food ambassadors from across the country, campaigning for better access to good food for everyone. We ambassadors have a vision and we've written the Children's Right to Food Charter, calling for government action to tackle child food poverty and obesity. In this episode, we're going back to the future. We're going to my hometown of Birmingham and the Food Futures Conference this summer. The Food Foundation brought distinguished speakers from 20 cities across the world together to showcase their plans to transform the food system. Seeing uh, the passion, the commitment, the work that is going on in the other cities, of course, we'd like to take in some good ideas, see what can be done in Rajkot, maybe tailor make those solutions for Rajkot and implement them there also. Dr. David Nabarro, co-leader of the United Nations Global Crisis Response Group, spelt out the critical need for food policy to be included in mainstream urban planning amid the climate crisis and dual burden of obesity and undernutrition. I asked him why the city is important in creating this new vision. For a long time, I felt the city is a great venue for bringing people together and helping to shift our systems and What I wanted to do was to feel the energy of lots of different city leaders coming together and sharing their experiences, and I've not been disappointed at all. I asked him what a food system looks like. I don't myself want to prescribe because each community has to work out a balance between the different uh, objectives of a food system. Is it environmental positivity? Is it engagement of young people? Is it making sure that women are properly recompensed for their roles? Is it more emphasis on nutrition and reduction in obesity? But all in all, I want food systems to be designed so that they respond to the needs of people and they reflect the interests of the planet. Mm -hmm. And so we have this kind of triangle, people, planet, food. And we stop thinking of food just in terms of the commodities or indeed even the the plates that we eat for our meals, but instead we think of food as the ultimate connector between people and then the ultimate link between people and the planet. And actually, food touches everything that's important to everybody. A a people-centred and a planet-centred food system will be very different from what we're seeing at the moment. I don't want to prescribe it, but that's where I want it to end up is people's interests and the planet's interests first and foremost. And I want to stress, poor people's interests have to come very, very high because we must always remember that it's tougher for the people who've not got that much uh, actual uh, cash available. And so we need to recognise that their choices are often very, very tricky indeed. Birmingham has its own pretty ambitious food system strategy. It's even had an episode about it on the BBC Radio 4's The Food Programme. And I'm one of the youngest members to sit on its city council forum called Creating a Healthy City, which has a mission to create a fair and sustainable food strategy and a vibrant food economy which can feed its people well. As we know from the last episode of Right to Food, the black country has one of the highest rates of childhood obesity in the country. So Birmingham faces a real challenge. 
Dr. Justin Varney, the Director of Public Health for the Birmingham City Council, told me what Birmingham can learn from its Commonwealth cousins. It's so important that we bring together cities from across the world to talk about food systems, talk about food justice and talk about food trade. You know, cities don't exist in a vacuum. We're not a little bubble. We're not little islands. We have to talk about this with each other. We have loads of relationships between cities which are based on economies, which are based on the food system. And actually events like this bring us together to allow us to talk about them and talk authentically and honestly about some of the real challenges ahead of us. But what does food futures mean in the various Commonwealth countries? I was excited to join James Kalunda, who is from Namibia. The food systems in a few years to come should be so collaborative, inclusive, and it should be responsive to the needs of the vulnerable people in the first place. We see food systems eventually to be commercialized, the initial stages must be to look after the ordinary and the vulnerable persons of our cities. Those who cannot afford a meal before they go to school, those who, who cannot afford a meal before they go to the playground, so that we can have energized and strength-filled young people to be able to concentrate in class. Amit Arorov is from the Rajkot smart city in the Indian state of Gujarat, where eating out and eating well is part of an initiative to promote a healthier lifestyle. The dialogues that are happening right now as far as food safety is concerned, they are definitely going to go up a notch after we attend this. And of course, you know, you know seeing uh, the passion, the commitment, the work that is going on in the other cities, of course, we'd like to take in some good ideas see what can be done in Rajkot, maybe tailor make those solutions for Rajkot and implement them there also. Rajkot uh, has a very vibrant food culture. So you have the most affluent class and the lower middle class eating out. They have a great culture of eating out and that to, to tiny places. So we have been investing a lot in hygienic food streets where we are aggregating small vendors, small cheap food sellers into one place with all the hygiene and all the licensing requirements and that has been quite a hit in our cities secondly to promote uh, safety we have the entire food safety wing working enforcing standards as to the quality of food that people are getting we have mobile testing units testing food there and to you know promote wellness in Rajkot we have been focusing a lot on public parks infrastructure with open gym equipments, which have been a hit with the public. We have been developing sports infrastructure in a big way to ensure that people remain healthy. We have been promoting cycling in a big way. As my topic there was the dual burden that cities face. We have, I think, more than 30 kilometers of cycle tracks already developed. Most of the design roads, the new roads that we build already are uh, designed to give a boost to cycling and pedestrians and not just private cars and vehicles. We have been focusing on private, uh, the rapid transit system also, public transport. So I think overall we are trying to make Rajkot as happy as and healthy as we can. Malawi is a small landlocked country and the poorest country in the world with one of the highest population densities in southern Africa. Catherine Mazmara is Executive Director of Women in Sustainable Agriculture and Strategic Lead for Mizuzu City's Food Work. 
That's the largest urban centre in the northern region of Malawi and the third largest city of the country. She says Mazuza Cities was formed to talk about the inequalities in agriculture. And as 56% of farmers in Malawi are women, the power to transform the food system is in their hands. There is a lot of inequalities. Where land is only uh, other tradition to be owned by men. And where livestock, especially beef and cattle, uh, are supposed to be led by men, not by women. But now... Because we've come together, we have more power, we can have a voice where we can talk and when we can deal with these inequalities in terms of the food system. Because when you look at the food system, from production to consumption, women are involved, 100%. Balance Fala is from the Ithikwini municipality in Durban, South Africa, and says gardening is the answer to building resilience against food insecurity. I've been involved with... um, 500 communal gardens that we are assisting as the municipality. And with them, we provide them with um, a whole lot of support in the form of infrastructure, including fencing, irrigation systems, storage containers, seeds and seedlings, as well as training and mentorship throughout the running of their programs. And this helps them to first attain food security and make um, income from selling their produce. So with that... Noticing that there's like a whole lot of challenges, including market, as well as um, availability of arable land. We recently launched One Home, One Garden program where we teach people to um, cultivate crops within their backyards. So it doesn't matter the kind of um, space that you have. We encourage using absolutely anything from containers, tires, old shoes, whatever, and even pellets to grow crops in their yards. And we do, we encourage vertical gardening as well, where um, people are able to to become food secure just from growing crops. Because um, we've learned that just because you do not have enough land or to form a crop preserve, does not mean that you cannot be food insecure. In Birmingham, in the sixth richest country in the world, Justin Varney says that for so many people facing a scary winter ahead, it's about the difference between eating and heating. Uh, The food team in the city council works closely with the Food Justice Network in Birmingham, which is a network of all of our food banks who came together initially through the COVID response. We've supported where we can as a council, putting money into those food banks and into the food system to help support the cost of living. But the reality is it's not something that local government is funded to do. We're diverting funds from other things that we should be spending it on to to try and address this. At the heart of this, this is about poverty. So there's a lot we need to do around the living wage and making sure that people are paid a good salary so they can afford to eat. But at the same time, we've got to talk about the food system and the price of food. It is ridiculous that basic essentials like bread and milk are going up in price every day. And we need to talk about why that is, unpick it, get to the bottom of it, because this winter is going to be a heat or eat winter. And we've got to get in this space fast to give people a chance of surviving it with some element of dignity and grace. It was a gathering of great minds, including someone who I've heard about from my dad since I was small. Dr. Edna Aden Ismail is one of the most influential Somaliland women in the world right now. She built a hospital, a university in her home in Somaliland, and as she told me, for the betterment of humanity. I asked her what she thought were the biggest challenges to the food system in Somaliland. Well, I think the biggest challenge that Somaliland faces and has faced for the past 32 years is its lack of political recognition. So when Somaliland, the former British Somaliland protectorate, the older 
Somali nation to be independent and the first uh, Somali nation to become independent on 26th of June 1960. And after Somaliland was the 12th country in the continent of Africa to be independent, to be lacking political recognition today mm -hmm. is the biggest obstacle that our country faces. Mm -hmm. But in spite of that, Somaliland is progressing. In spite of that, Somaliland is bringing its people back from a diaspora. Mm -hmm. In spite of our lack of political recognition, Somaliland has made a 300% progress in economic development. So that proves that we're doing something right. Mm -hmm. And it also also tells us that uh, development is, is, a, is a continuing progress Uh, we we should not just sort of lay down, you know, lay back and say, okay, now we've achieved peace and stability, we're doing okay. We need to continue building it, improving it, working on it, and uh, making sure that the whole Horn of Africa mm -hmm. is as, as stable and growing as Somaliland is. Building a culture around doing good work in her homeland, she says, has a huge impact on the rest of the world and educating and enabling women all over the world is so important to that vision i think it's very important to to understand that collaboration cooperation working together uh holding hands to fight uh our common enemy which is poverty ignorance joblessness these are the big enemies of of of, of our nations mm -hmm. and if we work together study hard develop skills and learn to work together, then we can contribute to the advancement, to the progress, to the development of our people. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of, there's a great need for the education of women. Yeah. Because um, God, subhanahu wa ta'ala, has created men and women in equal numbers, in equal proportion. And our development depends not only on the what men can contribute, or women can contribute, but it's what we can contribute together, men and women. And women need to be involved in the development of their people. Women need to be in the center of what is good for women, for families, for children, uh, fighting you know, famine and, and, and fighting malnutrition and lack of development of our children. So women need to be included in this. And I'm so happy that young women like yourself are studying to learn how to um, fill that gap that exists because women have in the past been denied access to proper education, have been denied access to, um, to be given responsibilities, mm -hmm. to share in the responsibilities of their nation. Yeah. So I'm happy and proud to see you. And I can in, I, I'm, I'm here to encourage you like, a, like a, you know, a grandmother. Whatever you do, do it well. Make your family proud. Make your people proud. Mm -hmm. Make our continent, Africa, proud. Um, and that's the only way we can, we can develop mm -hmm. our people. So what needs to happen in our cities to change the food system? Dr. Justin Varney from Birmingham City Council has a clear plan for the city and the Food Futures Day. 
So the first thing I think is for member state governments to talk to cities. We need to be round the table. Too often the global food conversation is done purely at a departmental and national government level. And cities need to have that conversation and be part of the conversation. We have some amazing global networks, Food Cities 2022, the Milan Urban Food Policy Pact and Delice are three really important networks of cities taking slightly different angles to the food system. But we need to be bringing around the table with the UN, with the global food efforts because cities are where we feel the pinch first you know cities can't grow their own we can't feed the city even if we planted up apple trees on every canal in Birmingham we would still be short about two million apples simply to give people an apple a day across the city it is just not doable so we feel the pinch when the food security issues come and that's why we've got to be around the table not just to be presenting that challenge but also to be part of the solution and he says Our vision has got to be global if we are going to change the world. One of the things that we we need to talk about more is the food's relationship with the Sustainable Development Goals. And that is across all of the Sustainable Development Goals. It's not just land on earth and land in the sea. It is about recognising that food has a massive carbon footprint that that's both in the way that it's created but also the way that it's transported if we can eat more local food and that food is farmed and grown in more sustainable ways that's brilliant we throw away far far too much food every day and we've got to deal with that waste language and that waste narrative we've got to find ways to upcycle recycle and recreate our approach to food waste in this city we will not achieve the sustainable development goals if we do not have food in every single sustainable development goal. It is part of innovation industry. It is part of tackling gender inequalities. It is part of education and skills. If we purely box food into life on earth and life in sea, then we're missing a trick because we cannot achieve those 2030 goals without food being part of the conversation. So by the end of the day, Justin wanted much more than talk from these world-leading sustainable cities. So we're going to be asking cities to join us in signing a food justice pledge for cities. So it's a global cities food justice pledge in which city leaders commit to cities playing their part in addressing food justice. So we're talking about the affordability of food, the availability of food, the sustainability of food, and the diversity and safety of food. It's time we talked politically as well as operationally about cities and around food justice and this pledge is the start of that journey. Alan Dangor, Head of Climate and Health at the Wellcome Institute, set out the scale of the problem and how few cities are planning for change. It's estimated from these global models that look at all of the evidence on agricultural production and the evidence of the changing climate that there'll be about a 10 to 15% reduction in the yields of the major cereal crops under relatively middle-of-the-road climate scenarios. There's less evidence on the impacts of climate changes on fruits, vegetables and legumes, uh, but but it's pretty clear that if it's hotter and it's drier, there's increased salinity, increased levels of ozone, plants will grow less well and yields will decline. And these impacts are not uniform. So we'll see some parts of the world where this is a substantially greater problem. And those parts of the world are much of Africa, much of South Asia, South America, Australia and the South Pacific. We'll feel the impacts the most severely. And we've seen already the, the indications of what this could look like. And these are relatively trivial, but let me give you some examples. So there was a drought in Spain last year. There was no lettuce in UK supermarkets. There was a drought in Mexico two years ago. There were no avocados. 
Personally, I don't mind there are no avocados, but there were no avocados. So these are trivial examples, but they are just the tip of the iceberg. And you can imagine that with a global food system where we're entirely dependent or increasingly dependent on import of foods from around the world, when those parts of the world are affected by extreme weather events, by drought, or by, by declining yields, this will affect the availability of food, and especially in cities that are often highly dependent on a global food uh, uh, system. And of course, what this does, a decline in the availability of food pushes up the prices of foods. And the prices of food, the most things that are most vulnerable, the fruits and vegetables, the most nutritious foods that we want people to eat more of, are the most at risk. So I ask you, how many cities, how many countries are planning, are actively planning for the impact of climate change on global food supply? How many cities are taking this as a fundamental question for the existence, for their existence? Climate change is also proceeding much faster than we previously thought. And who's ready? Cities must urgently act to think about how to ensure food supply, not just cereals, but also fruits and vegetables, so that food and nutrition security is maintained. And let me give you an example. In 2008 and 9, there was a sudden spike in the price of a food basket. And that pushed up the number of undernourished people, as defined by the Food and Agriculture Organization, to nearly a billion. And there were food riots in more than 30 countries around the world. So because if people can no longer afford to buy bread, people will, will riot, and quite rightly. It's scary. And Alan said he didn't even know the answers, but he does have plenty of questions. What are the public sector policies that can protect cities and their population? What are the private sector actions that are needed? What can local communities do? What can local farming cooperatives do? Where are the innovations? How can we protect the most vulnerable people? How can cities adapt to both global and local climate change to ensure that they can provide healthy and nutritious foods to their growing populations? These are huge questions, and I'm afraid there are currently very, very few answers. This conference was supposed to be about bringing cities from all over the Commonwealth together to share good practice and build a vision. But David Nabarro, co-leader of the United Nations Global Crisis Response Group, told me it's not that easy to get our own government to listen. But that's the problem really with national government. You know, by definition, it, it is quite distant from people. It can connect with people through representatives like members of parliament. But when you're working in a city, you are actually right up against the different communities, the different systems, the different institutions, and it's staring you in the face. So I've always thought that the city is the kind of laboratory for a nation. And a national government can see changes happening in cities, and then that in turn provides a signal. I love that word laboratory. I told David that for me, cities are a site of exploration, of building a vision. We can really stir up the old stagnant conversation and create a whole new way of thinking, can't we? Exploration is everything. You see, yeah. when you're trying to get systems to shift, yeah. you don't really do it by writing an instruction saying, next year we will do this, three years later we will do that. 
and it, it is all it all happens through people coming together who've got the energy to experiment to explore to test things out and in the city particularly a good city like this one when you're creating the space for that exploration you're saying go on try it out if it doesn't work it doesn't matter because if we're not trying things out and occasionally having things that don't work well then we're not doing anything useful at all so the notion of it being a laboratory where you're not scared occasionally of things not going right where you're not scared of opening up to new people to get involved that's the way it should be i mean i hate to say it but you sitting in front of me are a symbol of forward thinking of experimentation bringing your community in there must be something very special in the energy here in Birmingham that is making that possible. I'm super excited to see it. I do feel proud of Birmingham for leading the way in the UK and for bringing so many cities together to share their visions and practice. We've got a long way to go, but Justin says that the vision is clear thanks to open minds and teamwork. One of the joys of I have in my role is having really, really consistent political support from the leader of the council through to the NHS locally, to the universities, to our partnerships with the Food Foundation, to my public health team who, when I arrived, were like, What's this stuff about food? Um, this is a team effort as a city. This is a city that is coming together to really talk about food in an honest way, and we're delighted to work with the Food Foundation on it. I asked him what Birmingham could look like in 10 years' time. A city in Birmingham where everyone can afford to eat food that they find delicious, that they find reflects their cultural identity, that is safe and sustainable, and that the vast majority of that food is grown within the West Midlands, or to push the East Midlands, I'll take a bit over from Leicester as well, um, but truly that no one in our city, whatever their age, whatever their ability, whatever their socioeconomic status, is struggling to feed themselves and their family. Because if we have that, then we will be a city that is truly bold and is truly enabling our citizens to have choice, autonomy and agency and achieve their potential in life. Because if you're having to spend every day worrying about whether you can feed yourself and your family... You don't have as much brain space to find a decent job, to have fun, to have great relationships, because that nagging tension is draining you every day. So in 10 years' time, I would like this to be a city where food poverty doesn't exist and where we have a vibrant and successful food business sector that really celebrates our society. For Leila Kazim, co-presenter of Radio 4's The Food Programme, who was hosting the day, it was a revelation. I've learned about the journey they've all been on from the Milan Urban Food Pact that was signed in 2015 and then Food Cities 2022 and all the other stuff that's gone on. And now I sort of feel invested in these cities. I want to see how they do. Um, and it was the culmination of Birmingham talking about, you know, how far they've come at, in the last session of the day. I came up with some adjectives throughout the day that I felt like truly represented the day and they were empowering inspiring collaborative supportive and celebratory because it, it because they're all on this same journey and they're all sort of supporting each other and celebrating with each other I guess they're inspiring a sort of movement across the world and one of the things that came up so many times is that 
cities have the power to mobilize action because it's from the ground up because you know they're closer to the communities and the people who live in the cities they're in real time they can actually see how things affect their citizens whereas national governments can be a bit far removed from their citizens so you know the power really is in their hands that's a huge sort of theme i took from that food systems need to be responsive to everything that is happening in the world the climate crisis the cost of living the education system the healthcare system so we all need to be collaborative which means we need to hear from all the people who have roles within the food system, the farmers, the pickers, the buyers, the school kids like me who want to learn about how this all fits together and to dream of a better world. Food systems are about so much more than just a meal on your plate. And I think our food systems need to be built so that every single young person can get involved. Yes, that includes you because everyone needs food and everyone needs a fairer world. Thanks for listening to the Right to Food podcast. You can hear much more about the work we do at the Food Foundation through foodfoundation.org.uk and by listening to the archive of the Right to Food podcast wherever you find your podcasts.